This is Mark, who is the pen for Peter. Mark is penning for Peter here. Mark is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 8, verses 34, through chapter 9, verse 1. And these are the words that he pens. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I really began this message a couple of weeks ago, before Easter, And so what you have on your outline this morning already filled in for you are those two points that I gave you two weeks ago. We began this section of scripture back in verse 31. Back in verse 31, it's probably uh, subtitled or, or bears the heading in your Bible, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. We looked at verse 31 a couple of weeks back, and I said that is the revelation. That's where Jesus told his disciples what was coming down the road for him. He would suffer many things. He would be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and they would kill him. They would kill him. That was the revelation of Jesus' ministry. And then in verses 32 and 33, we see this series of rebukes. First, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, may it never be. No way. You're not going to a cross. You won't die. Remember we said Jesus absolutely ran against the grain of their paradigm for a Messiah. The Messiah they expected was going to ride in on a white horse and was going to absolutely obliterate, wipe Rome off the map, set up a new kingdom in which they would experience the freedom they had for so long wanted. And so we see Peter rebuke. Jesus. And then Jesus turns right back around and rebukes Peter. So we've looked at the revelation, we've looked at the rebukes, and now we want to look at number three on your outline this morning is the requirements. The requirements. Where the title of the message this morning is, Are You With Me? If you're going to follow Jesus, if you are to come after him, there are some requirements that Jesus lays down unapologetically in the text. So let me draw your attention first to verse 34, singularly. Look there at your Bible. Mark says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the requirement. If you are to come after Jesus, the requirement is that you would deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Now it's interesting to... Note here, right off the onset of the text, that a crowd has again formed around Jesus. 
And while in uh, recent passages, Jesus has called a particular person out of the crowd and dealt with an individual on a personal level, let me uh, just uh, attach your mind back to the the blind man. Uh, Let me attach your mind back to the deaf man where Jesus called a, a singular person, an individual out of the crowd, and he dealt with them uniquely and personally. But here, Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples, and he addresses them corporately. Jesus is addressing a crowd now, a corporate crowd. And what does he tell them? Well, in short, Jesus tells them that there is a price to pay, that there is a cross to bear for those who would follow him. There is absolute striking honesty, startling honesty in Jesus' words. I mean, not a single person anywhere at any time could ever say that he or she was induced to follow Jesus by false pretenses. Jesus never tried to bribe men to follow him with the lure of an easy life. Matter of fact, Jesus did not offer peace. What he offered was glory. He didn't offer peace. He offered glory. Jesus never sought to lure individuals to himself by the offer of an easy life. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite is true. As we read throughout the gospel accounts, we see over and over and over again Jesus telling individuals to count the cost involved in following me. There's a price to pay. There's a cross to bear. There's a hard road ahead. You really want to follow me? One account would be in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9. Just just give me your ears for a moment. Probably a familiar text to many of you. As they, Jesus and his disciples, were going or traveling along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to this individual, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then to another, he, Jesus, said, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus responds with these startling words, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. It's not an easy road, it's a hard road, and there's a cross to bear. Jesus never lured individuals to himself. By false pretense. One pastor has noted that Jesus would have been an absolute public relations manager's nightmare. Every time he began to attract a large following, Jesus would up the ante. He would tell him how high the cost was in following him. And the crowds would quickly vanish. Uh, Let me just take your mind back for a second here. Uh, to Jesus' discourse with the crowds as Jesus is letting them know that he is the bread of life and the spring of living water. And it says, upon hearing this, some of Jesus' disciples, which disciples uh, was used as the disciples proper, the twelve, and disciples was used of crowds at times too. Disciple uh, just means follower. There were many followers of Jesus who, who were not in the inner circle as the twelve were. But the gospel account tells us upon hearing this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. And Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples proper and he says, do you want to go too? And here Peter pipes up again and he says, Lord, where would we go? 
where would we go? You have, you possess the words of eternal life. We're with you. We're with you. Now they would learn from that point here and really through the rest of Jesus' life and ministry, I would submit for the rest of their lives exactly what that statement meant, we'll go with you. They had very little idea on the onset. They learned a lot as they went. Just what it would cost to follow Jesus. I want you to notice here in verse 34, the universal offer. Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone would come after me. Let me ask you this question. Are you a part of the universal crowd here? Have you? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, have you come after him? Are you seeking to follow him? If anyone would come after me, the word would there, in the original Koine Greek, it means desire, so quite literally the text reads here, if anyone desires to come after me. There's a universal offer here, a universal offer, but there is not a universal acceptance of the offer. That's why we send short-term missions, that's why we send long-term missionaries. Because not everyone accepts the universal offer. While Jesus' yoke is easy, the way of discipleship is quite difficult at times. And Jesus notes three conditions for those who would desire to come after him. Write this down if you're taking notes. A, on your outline there, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Jesus says, let him, let her deny himself or herself. Quite literally means to relinquish the throne. If anyone wishes, if anyone desires to come after me, he or she must relinquish the throne. It's to wave the white flag in surrender. That's what it means to deny yourself. I mean, quite literally, the Greek word there means to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from someone. It means to forget oneself, to lose sight of oneself. And the, the, the syntax here, don't want to get you confused here, but the syntax of the original language, keep in mind what you're reading on your lap there this morning is a translation, okay? The translation. My Hebrew professor in seminary told me one time, he said, reading your Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. There's some great encouragement there. You don't have to have a PhD in, in Semitic languages. Uh, you don't have to have a PhD in, in Greek uh, to have a working knowledge, I, I would encourage you, uh, poke around, get, get to know, learn a little bit about Greek. Uh, know a little bit about the language that is behind the translation that, that you read. That's a good thing. And you don't have to be a seminary student, you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to even be in pursuit of that. But to have a, a little bit or a basic working knowledge of, of the language here is a really good thing. It's a really good thing. So where I was taking you there is the syntax here is, is an ingressive. In other words, it speaks of an entrance into a new state or new condition. When Jesus says, let him deny himself, it speaks of a new condition. In other words, prior to following Jesus, there was no impulse to deny yourself. This is a new condition Jesus speaks of. As a matter of fact, the very opposite was true prior to our conversion. We denied ourselves nothing that we desired. But coming after Jesus means that we now live for him and not for ourselves. 
Denying yourself means that you surrender control of all of your own self-interests. It means that you submit your will to another. It means that you abandon your reliance upon yourself. It means that you give up self-admiration. That's, hey, look at me. It means that you give up self-serving. That's, hey, it's all about me. And that means that you give up self-determination. That's, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Selfishness is the controlling force in our natural man. Prior to conversion, selfishness is all that we know. But the love of Christ is the controlling force in a person who has been regenerated. It's the controlling force in a person who's been born again. It's the controlling force in a person who's become a new creation. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us Because we've concluded, we've come to this conclusion, that one, speaking about Jesus, has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live, here's the kicker, might not live for themselves, but instead live for him who died for them. Is that a characteristic of your life? And I would go a step further and say, is it a growing characteristic of your life? Is it increasing in measure? That desire not to live for myself, but to live for him who died, gave himself for me. To come after Jesus is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Denying self implies that you stop listening to your own voice, that you stop leaning on your own power, that you stop trying to fulfill your own wishes and your own will. When we truly deny ourselves, we have no will but his will, we have no plans but his plans, and we have no wants except what he wants for us. When I deny myself, I give up all my rights. I relinquish all control of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is captain. I'm servant. He's creator. I'm creation. He is master. I'm subject. Paul reminds us that your body is a holy temple. It's a temple of the Spirit of God, whom you have from God. And then he goes on and he reminds us because we need reminding from time to time that you are not your own. I am not my own. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have stepped out of the old man, out of Adam, and you are now in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you do not belong to you. You belong to the one who purchased you. My life is not my own. Paul says, so glorify God in your body. Jesus has an absolute claim on your life. An absolute claim on your life. Go back sometime later. I won't read the text for the sake of time, but just jot there maybe in the margin of your notes, Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. This is Paul's testimony here. And it is a great example of what it means and what it looks like to deny yourself. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. While I want to be gracious here, and I I don't want to belabor a point, and uh, I'm certainly in no way trying to be ugly or harsh, I I do think uh, that it is important to make a note 
right here. Uh, we have just come off of celebrating the resurrection, and I would submit to you that we need to not stop celebrating the resurrection. The, re the, the, the resurrection is just as true Monday morning as it was Sunday when we celebrated it. It's just as true this Sunday, seven days later, 168 hours later as it was last Sunday. We ought to be celebrating the resurrection unceasingly. Okay? But as we've just come off celebrating Easter as the particular day, we have also just come off of a season of Lent. Okay? And I want to submit to you that Mark chapter 8, verse 34, is not a pretext for Lent. It's important to note that Jesus is not advocating a self-denial of certain things that you or I might like to have. Okay? This is not where we should develop, as, as the Catholic Church has, a, a doctrine or a practice of Lent. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is he's calling you and me to repudiate our sense of sovereign autonomy. doesn't mean I give up fried foods. It doesn't mean I give up sugar. It doesn't mean that I give up those things. That's not what it means to deny yourself. To deny yourself means that you give up, that you relinquish, and so do I, our sense of sovereign autonomy. To use John the Baptist's words, he, Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. That's John 3.30. I'd encourage you to memorize that. One sentence. He must become greater, I must become less. That ought to be the theme of our lives, Christians. The first requirement Jesus lays down here is that we would deny ourselves. Number two, the second requirement is to die to self. Die to self. If we would come after Jesus, he demands that we take up our cross. That we take up our cross. This is certainly a misconstrued statement, certainly a misunderstood statement. Let me submit to you that Jesus is not referring to bearing life's burdens or bucking up under life's pressures as a definition for dying to self. Bearing life's burdens or bucking up under life's difficulties are not what it means to take up our cross. The cross is not a metaphor for the difficult circumstances of life. That's not what it means. We will absolutely misunderstand and misapply this text if that's what we think. The cross is not a metaphor for difficulties, trials, and challenging circumstances. To view it that way is to strip the cross of its significance. The disciples knew what a cross was. And so would the crowd that stood around Jesus there that day. They would have known what the cross was. It was a bloody symbol of execution and death. Literally, quite literally, what Jesus is saying here is pick up your instrument of execution. Pick up your instrument of execution. In our common day, it would be like saying pick up your electric chair. As followers of Christ, we are on death row willingly willingly on death row for Christ. We must be ready to die, not just to the flesh, not just to the devil, not just to the pride of life. Of course, all those things are absolutely and unmistakably, undeniably true. But to actually 
die for the sake of Christ and the gospel, if required. Now, not all of us are going to be required to die for the sake of the gospel. But are we even ready and willing? Are we ready and willing? Paul reminds us to live as Christ and to die is gain. You see, in Jesus' day, a cross wasn't a piece of jewelry. It wasn't, it wasn't a decoration on shirts or on bumper stickers or in church buildings. A cross was an instrument of shame, humiliation, suffering, torture, and death. And so when a man took up his cross, he was beginning a death march. In the Roman Empire, a convicted criminal, when taken to be crucified, was forced to carry his own cross. This showed publicly that he was under the submissive rule that he had once been opposing. Carrying that cross, the significance of that was that it pictured or it represented that you were now under the submission of the rule that you had once been opposing. Likewise, Jesus' disciples must demonstrate their submission to the one against whom we had rebelled but now love. New heart. Indwelling Holy Spirit, new creation, regenerated, new life, new birth. In Christ, not in Adam. And now we willingly follow and carry our cross. When Jesus called his disciples and those in the crowd to take up their cross, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Again, sadly, this passage here has been wildly distorted in our day. We've reduced taking up our cross to bearing the burdens of life or um, might even fill in the blank there. So uh, we could say here that, that uh, bearing our cross or taking up our cross, well, well that's just a, a metaphor for a difficult marriage or a wayward child or a heavy-handed boss or suffering from a physical handicap or an incurable disease. Friends, let me encourage you. While I don't want to minimize the difficulty of those types of circumstances in any way, shape, or form, the common trials and hardships that you and I will face in this Genesis 3 world are not your cross. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not what Jesus had in mind. When Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he's calling them to die. First to themselves. And secondly, for the gospel. He's calling them to commit to a lifestyle of living death. Living death. I think about Galatians 2.20 here. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I now live. I live for him, the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is calling us to willingly bear the shame, the reproach, the humiliation, the suffering, the hatred, the alienation, and even possibly the loss of our life that may come to those who are associated with him. Jesus told his disciples, they will treat you this way because of my name. If they obeyed me, they would obey you also. But you'll be treated this way on account of me because they do not know me or the one who sent me. By the way, this phrase here, to take up your cross, it suggests a once-for-all action. In other words, we're to take up our cross and we are not to lay that cross down until we reach the end of our lives, however we go out. In whatever manner we go out, or when the Lord returns, 
we are to bear our cross and not lay it down until we reach that point. The old hymnist wrote these lines, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. And so friends, I would ask you, have you taken up your cross? Are you dying to self? See, third on your outline there, Jesus tells those who would come after him that they must follow him. They must follow him. Now, the original language is in the present tense here. In other words, to follow Jesus is, is a continual characteristic of the true believer's life. Do we do it perfectly? We do not. But it is to be continual. It is to be continual. The Greek verb there means to take the same road as another. These words carry the meaning of submissive obedience. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, it means submissive obedience. But it's even more intimate than that. The Greek word here is associative. It means it carries the idea of following with Jesus. Jesus is calling people to make a radical commitment to following him. Wherever you go, Lord... I am with you on the road. I am with you on the road. This is a 24-7 commitment, no days off. And it's a joy, and it's a privilege. Because Jesus is not some harsh taskmaster. He is not a a tyrannical dictator. He is not heavy-handed. He's a good Lord, and a good master, and an excellent Father. Perfect Father. Wherever you go, Jesus, I'm on the same road. Three things are necessary in traveling. If you think about it, maybe some of you have taken a trip recently or are preparing for a trip. Three, three things are necessary for traveling. First is to say farewell to self, right? To say goodbye. Uh, secondly is to carry our baggage. Uh, that's the cross here. And thirdly is to proceed with the journey. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Have we said goodbye to self? Have we picked up the baggage? And have we said, I'm following you on the journey? Well, those are the requirements. Deny yourself die to yourself, and follow Christ. Number four on your outline this morning is this, the realities. The realities. We looked at the, re, the, uh, the revelation, the rebukes, the requirements, and lastly, the realities. Uh, let me draw your attention back to your Bible there for just a second. Look at verse 35 through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now, it's interesting here. Verses 35 through 38 give four reasons for desiring to come after Jesus. So Jesus lays down the requirement, verse 34. If anyone desires or wills to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which, by the way, Luke, Luke's account says take up his cross, what's the word? Daily. Okay? Take it up daily and follow me. And so what Mark does here in verses 35 through 38 is he gives four reasons 
why we need to do that. And we know that because each of these four verses, 35, 36, 37, and 38, all begin with the little Greek word gar. It's four. Four. Four is a reason word. Why do I do this, Jesus? Well, Jesus says, for this reason. For this reason, for this reason, and fourthly, for this reason. Okay, so what you see there in your Bible in verses 35 through 38 are the four reasons. Why deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him? Well, for, write this down in A here, to save your life, you must lose it. To save your life, you must lose it. For whoever would save his life, Jesus says, must lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, this is certainly a paradox, is it not? Paradox. I mean, what Jesus is saying here in this text is the winners will be losers. The winners will be losers. I mean, Jesus gives us the motivation here in 35, verse 35, for following him. He says that the one who loses his life does it for his sake. Why do I deny myself? I do it for his name. I do it for his renown. I do it for his glory. I do all things for his glory. That's the motivation. Jesus says, do all of these things for my sake. Lose your life for my sake, for my glory. You see, to lose your life is not an act of desperation. Rather, it's an act of devotion. It's an act of worship. Lose your life as worship to Christ the King. And remind yourself of that every morning when you step out of bed. Because there will be, with the rising of each day's sun, the tempting lure to save your life. And so we need to remind ourselves, today, this very day, indeed this very moment, I lose my life for Christ's sake. I lose it, I relinquish it, I lay it down. For Christ's sake. It's an act of worship, an act of devotion. And notice here that Jesus doesn't just say, for my sake, period. He adds, and for the gospel's sake. So I do it for, for the sake of Christ in, in worship, but I, I do it also for the sake of the gospel. In other words, losing, losing your life in devotion to Christ brings with it the, the duty to the gospel. In other words, because we live for Christ, I've died to myself because I live for Christ, I now live to proclaim Christ to others. Is that true of us? One of the saddest things on the face of the planet is a church that is stoic, is a church that is insular, is a church that only looks inside and meets inside needs. Friends, brothers and sisters, myself included, I need the exact same challenge. Let me encourage you to get dirty in the community that you live in. Get up to your ears in people and their mess and bring the gospel to their mess. They're not coming to us. Very few will come to us. Some will visit our church, invited by others. Praise God for that. But most of them are not coming to us. 
We've been called to go to them. To go to them. Right next door, your neighbor. Do they even know? This is challenging for me. I, I, I hope you don't think Sunday after Sunday that the, the talking head behind the pulpit has got it all together because he certainly doesn't. I struggle with the exact same things that I have to stand up here Sunday after Sunday and preach and exhort and admonish and encourage you to do. I have to remind myself that I am, I am the congregation. To save your life, you must lose it. When confronted by the call to follow Christ, we don't have a, a both-and choice, a, a both Christ and my life. Rather, we stand before God with an either-or choice. It's interesting, uh, Paul notes in Colossians chapter 3, he says, when Christ who, and I just love the phrase, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The claim of Jesus Christ is total and it's exclusive. It doesn't allow for convenient compartmentalization not like I can have my, my secular life over here and my sacred life over here and you know my, my worldly life over here and my church life over here and I can just stick both hands in both buckets. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. We died. We died. The way to save your life is to lose it. B, secondly, to gain the world means to forfeit your soul. To gain the world means to forfeit your soul. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Suppose you were able to gain the whole world, whatever that means to you. That's everything that a person could possibly hope for, dream for, want, lust after. I'm not, to say I'm not encouraging you to do that, but I did just encourage you to think about it for a moment. But consider that it costs you your very soul to obtain it. Friends, let me let you know that would be a very bad bargain. That would be a losing deal. A losing deal. You see, discipleship is a matter of profit and loss, a question of whether we'll waste our lives or invest our lives. Whether we'll waste them or invest them. Remember, Jesus is instructing his own disciples here, men, men who had already confessed him as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Now, they were still learning exactly what that meant, of course, but they had already confessed him as the Son of God, the Messiah. And so Jesus wasn't telling his disciples here how to be saved and to go to heaven, but rather how to save their lives and make the most of the opportunities that God has given you on this earth. Don't waste your life. Don't miss the great opportunities that, that God gives you to make your life count for eternity. You can gain the whole world and be a success in the eyes of men and yet have nothing to show for your life when you stand before God. This is exactly what Paul was talking about here using a different language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, now if anyone builds on one foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. It'll become known for the day, the day of the Lord will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built or done, built on a foundation, if it, if it survives, he, that individual, will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, yet only through the flames. 
It is very possible to have nothing to show for your life when you stand before God. To have wasted your life. I think about C.T. Studd's words, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. We need to land the plane here, let me do it quickly. See, your soul is extremely valuable. Look at verse 37 there, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is extremely valuable. Let me just leave it at that. D, if you're ashamed of Christ, he'll be ashamed of you. It's pretty self-explanatory there. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me just say one thing about this particular verse 38 here. Jesus is not speaking about the true believer, the converted Christian who cowers briefly in a moment of opposition because that has been all of us. We have all at one time or another, in a moment of opposition, spiritual opposition with another individual cowered in that moment and been ashamed. Maybe it's that we didn't speak up for the gospel. Maybe it's that we didn't take an opportunity to share about Christ. And we have all cowered in the moment. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, Jesus is referring to the person who, because of his or her shame, never in the case of that person, Jesus says the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. Jesus will turn away saying, depart from me, I never knew you. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Friends, don't let your ego cost you the salvation of your souls. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent and believe. Well, I said verse 1 of chapter 9 really goes with the end of chapter 8. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You can ask me why later, but simply I think it's this. I think it sums up the chapter. Jesus uh, says here, look at your Bible, look at chapter 9, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The question is, what in the world is Jesus talking to are talking about when he says that they will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, some have suggested that Jesus is speaking about his second coming. I would deny that because that is still yet future. It hasn't happened yet. So the question remains then, what is Jesus speaking about here? I would submit to you that Jesus is speaking about his death and more specifically his resurrection. Jesus is looking the eyeballs there in the crowd and saying, some of you, some of you will live to see my resurrection. And I think that because right as we step into chapter 9 here, what we see is the story of the transfiguration, which is a precursor to the resurrected glory of Christ. So, again, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Let me land the airplane here. Are you clear about the value of your soul and your eternity? What do you value? Do you value yourself? Do you value your life? Or do you value, value Christ? Is it this world or is it God's world? Is it your will or is it God's will? What will you invest your life in? This world or Christ's kingdom? You must choose. There's a line drawn in the sand. You must either go your own way and try to save your own life, cling to your own stuff, or you will deny yourself, die to your old way of living, and go ahead and follow Christ along the road with him. The question is, which will it be? Let me leave you with this quote this morning. Jim Elliott, who was martyred as a missionary to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, wrote this in his journal just before he was murdered. He is no fool who gives 
what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, let me, let me leave you with this question. Are you with him? Are you with him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it challenges us to the core. Uh, Lord, I pray that every person here uh, would consider and count the cost of following you and they would deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow along the same road wherever you go, we are with you, Jesus. Give us the grace to make it so that our lives might be a shining display of the glory of Christ in this world until you, Jesus, step back in and return. We pray these things in Jesus' name.